0: I'm not be Is not working right now. For some reason it's going off the internal microphone. So we're going to do a few minutes of troubleshooting this morning and I will try to keep you entertained while I do it. So yesterday we all witnessed something horrific. We all witnessed um, I think one of the first murders to ever be live streamed and retained on YouTube. It was uh, pretty bad. So what I wanted to do is because, as you guys know, I am not really the type of guy to, man, maybe I need to put it in the other side. I am not the type of guy to uh, comment on these type of things. It's just not really ever been an interest of mine. But uh, I will be stepping in the ring for something which is an interest of mine. Uh, That is the teaching of John of St. Thomas. So, John of St. Thomas's position was brought up during the debate, and um, I, I don't think it was given enough airtime because, generally, what, what my thoughts are is that you can't draw a certain conclusion from an uncertain premise. And that is what the Diamond Brothers, instead of a contest in general, I believe, really try to do. is. They try to draw uh, from the words of St. Robert Bellarmine in his the uh, Roman Pontiff, which is, mind you, his uh, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine's opinion. It isn't the only teaching of theologians. They try to draw a certain conclusion about what would happen with a heretical pope. Now, not only do I think they... Miss the fact that there are multiple takes when it comes to uh, what they think that they get Saint Robert Bellarmine's position wrong. They fail to distinguish between what's called quod say and quod nos So quod say means something in itself. So uh, Bellarmine would say that in himself, the heretical pope has lost the office of the papacy but coad nos, that is, according to us, the heretical Pope has not lost this self-same office of the papacy. There we go. I have now connected my microphone. So, yeah, so that's generally uh, what my take is going to be. So today it's going to be a pretty long one, pretty long stream. I'm going to be going over a essay that I wrote, On uh, heretical popes. I'm also going to be going over the primary sources when it comes to John of St. Thomas's position. And then I'm going to go into Bellarmine's sources, so something uh, from uh, the famous section in Book Two, Chapter 30 of On the Roman Pontiff. And then I'm also going to go over uh, some of his De Ecclesia, where he talks about a similar issue. And it's very clear from these two passages that unless you're going to have St. Robert Bellarmine uh, blatantly contradicting himself that he does not believe that quod nos, the heretical pope, is uh, said to be deposed uh, in, in relation to us, but only uh, in himself. And that there needs to be that sentence of the church in order for us to separate ourselves from the Roman pontiff such and to regard him as not pope. So... It's going to be a fun one. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really good. Sorry about the mic trouble to begin with, but actually, what I wanted to start out with is uh, talking about today's feast day. So today is the feast day of Saint Matthew. Uh, make sure you uh, have for breakfast silver dollar pancakes. I think that's the only tradition I can think of. So definitely make sure you uh, you celebrate that feast day today because. That is something glorious about uh, Catholic liturgical life: is the uh, the feast days that we have, and then also I meant to mention, uh, which has come out today. I haven't posted about this on any sort of social media yet, so you guys are getting this first. But right there, little Catechism on Logic that I have wrote. So this is a very brief uh, introduction in catechism format to everything you need to know about scholastic logic. So link is in the description below. And then if you also want Father Kopin's, uh, his brief textbook on logic and uh, audio commentary, audio lessons for me, uh, you can go to the link below or ChristianBWagner.com slash courses. I do have a I think it's like uh, 11, 12 part um course on logic. So you need to learn philosophy in order to be a better theologian. Better theologian. Okay, so let us get right into it. So first what I was uh, actually, first I'm going to do, I always forget to do this, but today it's the morning, so my brain is actually working. What we're first going to do is we are first going to pray. So, O Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come unto thee. Let us pray. Ineffable creator, who out of the treasure of thy wisdom has appointed three hierarchies of angels and set them in admirable order high above the heavens and has disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom. Be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, Method and facility in study, subtlety and interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou who art true God and man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Robert Bellarmine, pray for us. John of St. Thomas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay, now we can get started, but before that, I'm going to check the live chats right after I pull up the article that we're going to be going over first. Because I decided to, uh, when it came to this, do in the order of learning, not the order of being. Because with the order of learning, I start out with the simplest thing and then go on from there, which is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to generally gradually introduce all of the sources. Okay, so... Lack of punctuality is a great sin. Sorry, guys. It's just, that's just me. Uh, Eastern Orthodox here. I saw your comment on the live stream uh, regarding John of St. Thomas on this issue. I quickly opened a tab and looked into it. Definitely has given me a lot to ponder. Thanks, King. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, did you see my article? Well, I guess you're about to see my article because I'm about to go over it. Check out Contra set of Acontism. contism. Uh, he's great. Yes. I was going to spam the chat with make me a mod stuff like someone I know, but now I think I will not. <laughs> I was I was spamming the uh, the punch of the Aquinas chat uh, for them to make me a mod. And then other people started spamming the chat. So There needs to be a declaratory sentence from the church for the heresy to be notorious. Right. Or is there another way as well? There needs to be the declaratory sentence. That's something that all theologians are going to agree with. Even St. Robert i is going to show. How do you bind your books? Through Amazon. Uh, Pray for my friend, Aloysio. He is a struggling homosexual. That's unfortunate. Okay, that is the live chat right now. Okay, so on Papal Heresy, uh, you can get this on my website. Something I wrote. I'm trying to think how long ago I wrote this. Is our date? Yeah, May nineteenth. So I've been interested in this issue for a few months. Been reading about it. So introduction. I've often encountered those who argue thus from the writings of Saint Bellarmine. This is going to be the Diamond Brothers, or really, uh, you'll get this from Set of contest in general. A pope that is a heretic is ipso facto deposed by Christ from the papacy. The pope is a heretic. Therefore, Pope Francis is an anti-pope and ought not to be followed. This is almost exactly the type of argumentation that occurs. While the minor premise, uh, the pope is a heretic, must be utterly repudiated with utmost severity and disgust. There are other er- disgust. There are other errors in play. And what we're going to see from the John of St. Thomas article that I'm going to bring up uh, on papal heresy is that those uh, the Dominicans of Avril or Avier. I'm not sure how to pronounce it yet. They actually do believe that Pope Francis is a heretic. Uh, they're part of the SSPX resistance. They do believe Pope Francis is a heretic, but they, uh, interestingly enough, uh, are Thomists. So they repudiate uh, the position of most set of a uh because uh, they're deny. They don't deny the minor premise. I would deny the minor premise that the Pope is a heretic. I would strongly deny that. But they would deal more with the major premise, a pope that is a heretic is ipso facto deposed by Christ from the papacy. So I, uh, in this, will be dealing more so with this, with the uh, major premise. I think if I were ever to get into a debate with, I don't know, let's say Brother Peter Diamond decides to pull up in the live chat and ask for the StreamYard link. We would have a debate right now. What I would do is I wouldn't focus so much on this. I think it's a bit fruitless. Uh, to argue all the time with set of a contest like oh what did pope francis say here oh what did he mean by this oh what did what is what is the church's thesis on this what is the the weight of the what's the theological note which is present uh how how has it been contradicted uh what manner of contradiction is it what is the disposition of the subject contradicting There there's a, a trillion different questions I, I i think it's a bit fruitless to to rely on this minor premise right here what i would do is I would concede in argumentum the minor premise. So I would just say, okay, I will concede that for argument's sake. And then what I would do is I would heavily rely on properly distinguishing this major premise right here, that a pope that is a heretic is ipso facto deposed by Christ from the papacy, both denying it from the works of Cajetan, and then also providing the proper distinctions in the work of St. Robert Bellarmine. First, the consequent is faulty, uh, faulty for St. Robert Bellamy argues that the heretical pope would be judged and punished by the church for his heresy. A non-Christian who is such in itself and in relation to us, quod se et quod nos, cannot be pope. However, if he is not itself a Christian because he has lost the faith, but if in relation to us he is not legally declared being infidel or heretic, as obvious as it may appear in a private judgment... He is still in relation to us, coadnos, a member of the church and therefore head. Accordingly, a judgment of the church is required through which he is denounced as being a non-Christian and to be avoided. And then he ceases in relation to us, so coadnos, to be pope. Consequently, previously he did not cease to be in himself pope because all what he did was valid in itself. So, from the works of Bellarmine, what you can do is you can take this: a pope that is heretic is ipso facto deposed by Christ from the papacy, and distinguish it. If you mean uh, quo ad se, if you mean in itself, then I would, I would concede the premise. But if you mean quadnos nos, in relation to us as being able to separate ourselves from this uh, obviously heretical pope, then I would deny it. So, you can, if you want to hold, say, Robert Bellarmine's position go ahead. You're fine. Um, I don't hold it, but if you want to hold it, you still have ammunition by distinguishing the major premise. Now, I believe in Cajetan's position, as articulated by John of St. Thomas, um, and even Gary Gulagrange treats this. uh, I would just flatly deny this, that a heretic is ipso facto deposed by Christ from the papacy. There must be that judgment for our separation occurs. We cannot, even on the supposition that the Pope is a heretic, separate from him until those properly tasked, the bishops of the world, judge him. And I'm still describing Bellarmine's position. Before this judgment, he is to be regarded as Pope to us, even if he is a heretic, and thus for Bellarmine deposed in Act 2. And then uh, it's also quite say, so in, in, actually, uh, in actuality in itself. This seems to be more in line with the dominical example of our Lord gives regarding the leaders of Israel during his day. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat, all therefore whatsoever they bind, you observe that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Because if if, uh, our Lord was a set of a contest, he would not be acting practically like this, saying, obey what they say not do after their evil works we too ought to follow this example of the recognition of remaining jurisdiction in regard to a heretical pope so notice this does not say that he has jurisdiction he could not bellarmine could be right he could not have jurisdiction this is not saying that he has jurisdiction Quod se in itself according to itself what this is saying is we ought to recognize the fact of such quod nos to us. Second, the major premise is not certain. So this is Cajetan. For the Thomistic tradition of the commentators has always rejected such an idea. This article will focus on this issue, while the first must certainly be investigated, perhaps in a different article. And uh, sorry to say I never wrote this article, uh, but I will be covering a few places in St. Robert Bellarmine uh, right now for you guys. I'm going to check the live chat real quick. We'll keep pretty active in the live chat. Uh, I would advise you Arch Die channel. It is French and has a lot of videos translated in English instead the a contest. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, Casman got murdered out there. Yeah. Uh, that seemed to be the point Casman was trying to make, that according to Bellarmine, this requires a judgment from the church to make him a heretic, but he did it in a very ad hominem way. Yeah, uh, that's kind of my judgment when it comes to uh, particularly to the ability of um Kastman when it came to his argumentation is that really uh Kastman went about it like a catholic answers apologist uh goes about protestantism and I, I will i will explain it rather than dealing with the arguments and the positions which are being brought forth which can be very convincing he just said uh like presup, like uh, what authority do you have to interpret that? Well, that doesn't that doesn't help at all. That that's a, that's the worst debate tactic possible. You need to deal with what they are putting before you, and not try to uh, force people into some sort of a cognitive dissonance, and say that well, uh, it may appear like that to you, it may be obvious to you, but you can't think it because you don't have authority. That is not the way of going about it. That's a terrible, terrible, uh, terrible debate tactic. How many people are theologically confused now after that debate? Yeah, there's plenty of people, which is why I think, uh, to be honest, um, to be perfectly honest, uh, frat should just take it down. Uh, this debate should not stay up. It's gonna be damaging a lot of souls. So I hope uh, definitely share this video around to help people out. And then I think Michael did one. Michael often did one last night. I saw, and I, I mean, Michael and I, uh, we 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 come at things from from different uh, angles. So I'm sure he'll be treating a lot of different things than I'm treating, and I'll be treating a lot of different things that he uh, is treating because I don't think uh, he's treating this issue at all. Okay, and that is all. I'll get back to it. So first, can a deposition occur? So this is the first question we need to we need to ask ourselves because some are going to argue uh, actually uh, no deposition occurs just kind of suck it up and uh, suffer. That's what that's what some people are going to argue. First, the question of whether such a deposition can occur must be treated. There are several authorities that John of St Thomas quotes that argues for such. First, Gratian, uh, pars uh, one, distinction forty. Uh, Chapter six, on earth, no mortal should presume to reproach any faults to the pontiff because he who has to judge others should not be judged by anyone unless he is found deviating from the faith. Notice this last part, unless he is found deviating from the faith. Okay, that's that's promising. Second, Hadrian, II in the seventh century, uh, seventh session of the Fourth Council of Constantinople, that's going to be the Western Fourth Council of Constantinople wrote a letter wherein he wrote, We read that the Roman pontiff has always possessed authority to pass judgment on the heads of all the churches, but nowhere do we read that he has been subject to the judgment by others. It is true that Honorius was post, uh, posthumously, posthumously sorry, anathematized by the Eastern churches, but it must be borne in mind that he had been accused of heresy, the only offense which renders lawful the resistance of subordinates to their superiors and their rejection of the latter's pernicious teachings. Very important right there. From these authorities, two truths must be reconciled. First, the ancient maxim that the first see is judged by none. That one is very important. Second, the truth that the Pope may be judged in cases of heresy. And we're going to see in Bellamy and John St. Thomas, they list <clears throat> many examples of this. These two truths are reconciled in two ways. First, the way of St. Bellarmine. Second, the way of the Thomists. Second, a theological argument may be given. For St. Paul writes, a man that is an heretic after the first, first and second admonition reject. In this, there are two options. First, the one should avoid the Pope. Now, this is irrational for the Roman pontiff is the earthly head of the church and ought to be communed with. Therefore, one ought to depose him from the position as to not go out of communion with the office of the Pope. It would be irrational just to avoid uh, the Holy Father, so there must be this disposition, uh, deposition. We'll get into disposition later. One may posit that we ought to stay in communion with a heretical pope. This, too, would be against the faith. For first, this is against the words of St. Paul. Second, this would lead to the obvious destruction of the church. and as inherently a risk that the whole ecclesial government errs if she has to follow a heretical head. Further, we may argue from natural law for one has the right to defend oneself. A radical pope is attacking the church. Ergo, the church has the right to defend herself. With these arguments and many others, the principle that a heretical pope must be deposed is confirmed, or I should have said verified. So This principle is verified because really, what else are you going to say? Honestly, there is there's almost no other option unless you want to just reject the office of the papacy. Without falling into heresy, there are no other options. I need a drink of water. Okay. Now the conditions of deposition. Now we must ask the question of the conditions of deposing a pope. Is it in any case heresy? Uh, Is it any case of heresy? Material, former, etc. Or a particular species of heresy. John of St. Thomas and Cajetan give two conditions. So first condition. That the Pope is not an occult secret heretic. But public and legally notorious. So you're going to have to prove. That Pope Francis is publicly and legally notorious. And then remember. This is proving that he's publicly and legally notorious. In order to even have the deposition. Which the deposition has not occurred. So, this is this is really all, all uh, completely. Um, how do I put it? Uh, hypothetical. All of this, every single last bit of it, is hypothetical. Some argue that the pope, even with an occult heresy, is deposed ipso facto. This is a kind of a schizo position. Uh, although I probably shouldn't call it schizo because there were some uh, eminent theologians who held to it, but the fact that an occult Heretic is, uh, as Pope is, deposed ipso facto, that is a bit uh, odd. The more probable opinion, according to Kano, Soto, Cajetan, Suarez, and Bellarmine, is that the heresy must be external and proved and proved in the external forum. The thesis is proved by the fact that in the case of occult heretics not condemned by the church, while they are not a part of the soul of the church, are members of the body of the church. With the case of priests, this is also confirmed by the fact that even outwardly heretical priests can administer the sacraments in cases of extreme necessity. Second, that he does not repent, but is incorrigible and pertinacious in his heresy. For those who are heretics and repent after being corrected are not considered to be heretical. This is confirmed by the words of the apostle quoted above, for we only avoid after the first and second correction. After the first and second correction, and I hope all of you are seeing that Brother Diamond, even if we can see that the Pope is a heretic, his position is not uh, any more reasonable, any uh, reasonable at all, really. Unless these two conditions are met, the Pope cannot be deposed. These, these are the conditions to be deposed. Notice so, we have not even so, really, where they have gotten. they've gotten the first condition of deposition that is all they've gotten they've not even gotten to the second condition of deposition and even then they have not gotten to the actual deposit deposition itself so you are like five steps behind right now and you're saying that the pope is ipso facto deposed and then who deposes the pope this is gonna be important too but i'm gonna check the live chat real quick Universal recognition, okay. Uh, as an outsider looking in, taking down the live stream will give off the impression that the set of is uh, positions correct. No doubt Peter recorded it as well in case that exact action took place. Look, my, uh, okay, I guess I will So my problem with keeping the live stream up, it's not that, so that, that might be the case. And I will concede that for a lot of people taking down the live stream will uh, give Brother Peter, um, I don't know, more uh, more fire, uh, more ammunition, uh, really, to, to fire against uh, us. Fine, fine. But look at the amount of people. Look at the people that watch Pines of Aquinas. You think... Um, Sally from Franciscan is going to be watching Vatican Catholic when they re-upload the debate between Diamond and Cassman. You think some random, like, students of Franciscan or random uh, Normie cats are going to be, even even hear of Brother Peter Diamond, if it gets taken down? You think they're going to be scouring the internet, trying to look for a a, a copy to watch? No, they don't care, but they're going to accidentally run into it if it is on pines of aquinas really the only people that are going to care uh, if this happens is the set of a contest, and they're going to use this as as one more argument um amongst themselves and it's really going to confirm them in their error but it's not going to uh, draw really any more people um into it so that that's why i have um i have that position yeah, I think bringing in an SSPX sympathizer is the worst you can take. I have to take the Sede position, but that's just me. No, I think I think if you have, um, some of some of the best uh debaters against set of has been SSPX guys. Uh the the Dominicans of Avril. Uh you, you see like the the little catechism on set of a which later this week I'm probably gonna do. I'm thinking I'm gonna do three uh live streams, uh two more live streams the remainder of this week just on set of a because of this can of worms that was opened up but yeah there have been really good uh defenders of um, of the legitimacy legitimacy of the pope uh, within the sspx okay um it's uh it it it's very easy to fall into a set of a contism. Look at the majority of Catholic churches today. They don't act or look like they care about the faith. This is why the debate was so damaging. Exactly. Exactly. We, we are in uh, right now very much a, a uh, position of weakness. Exactly. Sally may start watching Brother Peter now. You're going to have all of these normie cats uh, who are just going to be uh, scouring. They're, they're going to be watching the, uh, the uh, video from 12 years ago from, from Brother Peter on racism. look <laughs> okay th- this but in a nicer way this but in a nicer way it, it was it was not a good idea to have Casman debate uh brother peter who is a literal autist when it comes to this stuff and i mean autist not in an offensive way but in like an extremely uh focused and diligent reader of um of a certain topic so yeah Yeah, I'm not going to comment anymore on the on the SSPX. I love my SSPX friends. So who deposes the pope? Now we must ask the question of who deposes the pope for as we have established beforehand, the first he is judged by none. Therefore, there seems to be a difficulty because who's going to do the judging? I and mean, is is this even judging, which Cajetan uh, is going to show that this is not actually judging. Some have answered that the declarative sentence should be given by the College of Cardinals. This is false. First, from the practice of the church has never been to call the College of Cardinals. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, the, pra- the different times this has happened. First, the synod was called when Pope Marcellinus offered incense to idols. Second, concerning the case of Pope Symmachus, uh, a council was called. Third, during the Great Western Schism, the Council of Conscience was called. So anytime this has ever happened to the church, it was not to call the council, uh, the College of Cardinals. Second, there's a theological argument to be made for the deposition belongs to the church. This authority is represented by an ecumenical council. Therefore, deposition belongs to an ecumenical council. Cardinals, on the other hand, are merely electors in canon law. As we established above, the church has a divine right and duty to separate herself from a heretical pope. Now it is a principle of nature that if one has the right and duty to do something, then all the necessary means will be given this is important because now I prove that a deposition needs to happen. There has to be the means given to carry out that deposition, and that's why even people like Bellarmine, Bellarmine held that um, that there would never be a heretical pope, um, manifestly heretical pope. That's what Bellarmine held for his personal position. But the reason why this question was treated by the theologians is because if there is this right and duty to do something when it comes to a heretical pope, then there has to be a, uh, a, a means to be uh, to carry out that deposition. So even if it will never happen, the means still have to be present. This is something which is a, absolutely a principle of nature. The most fitting means is an ecumenical council, as has been proved above. Therefore, that is the means. And uh, as a quick note, um, and I don't know why I, uh, why I even mentioned this in the article, it's not too important, but Suarez gave the opinion that a provincial uh, council could judge a pope, but the universal church is not re- represented by a provincial council or a bunch of provincial councils. Therefore, the opinion is false. Okay, so on what authority is a pope deposed? This is the, this is the trillion dollar question right here, because right now what you're thinking is you're probably at this moment convinced. You say, okay, we need to depose a heretical pope. Okay, it would be done by an ecumenical council. Those two theses, very clear. Now, what authority is uh, is invoked when it comes to deposing a pope? Because it seems like there could be no authority which can be evoked, uh, invoked when it comes to deposing a pope. So this question that was raised above on how such an authority could be had will now be treated. There are four opinions on the matter. Kajetan label labels too extreme and too moderate. And I'm going to get another drink of water while I check the live chat. Good question. How is the Cajetan position you articulated not the set of a pri- privationist position? Well, it isn't the set of privationist position because the Pope is still materially and formally heretical. Because for for Cajetan, uh, Cajetan is going to say we're about to get into this that the matter of the papacy. Uh, By the action of the church becomes ill disposed to receive the form and by the ill disposition of the matter, the form is lost. And for those who do not know, the set of privationist position is basically that um, you have uh, the people sitting in the chair of St. Peter right now. They're not formally the pope, but they're still materially the pope. And once they return to the true faith, they will again become formally the pope. So that's that's where the distinction is is actually this form and matter distinction is the very way in which Cajetan is going to be able to justify how we have the, the nobody above the first see, but we also have an ecumenical council who is deposing the Pope. Okay, so I will continue. So the question uh, that was raised above, uh, there's two extreme, two moderate. Okay, so the first extreme position that Cajetan labels Is that of St. Robert Bellarmine who argues that the Pope is deposed ipso facto, quite say, by his heresy? He bases this uh, argument on the premise that one who is not a member cannot be the head. We're going to see that is going to be huge. It's going to be huge for the set of a contest position. Is they're going to argue one who is not a member cannot be head? They're going to repeat that over and over again. Now, one who is in heresy is not a member. Therefore, one who is in heresy cannot be the head. That is going to be what they repeat ad nauseum. Yet we would reject this premise. We would say it's false, completely false, that one who is not a member cannot be a head. We would, And we would respond with Bilouar, who writes, there's a difference between being constituted a head by the fact that one is influencing on the members and being made a member by the fact that one is receiving an influx itself. This is why while the pontiff who fell into occult heresy keeps the jurisdiction by which he influences the church by governing her, thereby he remains the head, but as he no longer receives the vital influx of Christ's faith or charity, it was the invisible first head, he cannot be said to be a member of Christ or of the church. So this is, uh, there's a difference. One can be head without being member. One can influence without being, uh, uh, influence without being influenced by. That's what Bill of Art says. And we're going to uh, run into a lot of other theologians who are going to teach the same thing in about, I don't know, uh, 10 hours from now when we finally finish the stream. The second extreme position is that the Pope truly has a superior who can judge him on earth, which is false by the principle that no seat, that the first seed is judged by not. This is clearly false. The first moderate position argues that the Pope has no superior on earth in absolute terms, except in case of heresy, then he has a superior. This position is probable, but seems to fall into the same errors of the second extreme position. And I think that's pretty clear. And now this is going to be Cajetan's position. The second moderate position argues that the Pope has no superior on earth, neither absolutely nor in the case of heresy, but only in a ministerial way. Only in a ministerial way. And the difference between um, that that would be, for example, like let's say you have... um, an ecumenical call a ecumenical council called uh, by Pope Francis Vatican three calls Vatican three right now. And he holds it in, uh, let's say Dallas, Texas. So council of Dallas. Uh, why would it be called Vatican three if it's in Dallas? No idea, but let's pretend real quick. So he holds the first ecumenical council of Dallas. And he sends as his representative, uh, I don't know, um, Taylor Marshall, because Taylor Marshall's in Texas. So Taylor Marshall is now uh, Pope Francis's representative in the Ecumenical Council of Dallas. Let's just say that. So the Ecumenical Council is held, and Taylor Marshall walks in, and he runs the Ecumenical Council. Now, Taylor Marshall, what is his ecclesiastical position? Absolutely none. He is a layman. So does Taylor Marshall have any absolute power over all of the cardinals and bishops present at the First Ecumenical Council of Dallas? No absolutely none but in a ministerial way as being delegated by the supreme pontiff he is exercising authority not in himself but in a ministerial way so and then he's going to provide a helpful example when it comes to the election of a of the pope just as the church has a ministerial power to choose the person but not to give power as this is done immediately by christ so if you want to argue that this is uh, ridiculous um, that anybody would be able to have a ministerial power over the Pope with the papal election, the church has a ministerial power over the Pope because uh, ministerially the church is uh, becoming that channel of giving the authority of, um, of the um, Pope in the same manner in the deposition, which is the destruction of the bond by which the papacy is attached to such a person in particular. So notice this is not wrought on the person. This is wrought. Okay, first, it's ministerial as we went over. Second, it's not wrought on the person of of the pope, but rather the bond which links the person to the papacy, just as they join the link ministerially so they can destroy the link ministerially. Uh, The church has the power to depose him in a ministerial manner, but Christ uh, is it who deprives the power with authority. We're going to also be getting into a little bit of the exact metaphysical means by which this occurs. This is the most probable opinion and is the opinion of the Thomists. So now I'm going to, I kind of need to sneeze. Okay, I'm good. Now I'm going to be getting into uh, a few of the explainers of this. This position, the second moderate position, is formulated in three theses. First, the heretical pope is not deprived of the pontificate and deposed by the mere fact of heresy considered separately. So not deposed ipso facto. And this, again, is something, uh, quote, say, which is uh, disputed between Bellarmine and Cajetan. Second, the church has neither power nor superiority over the pope about his power, even in the case of heresy, neither is the church's power above the power of the Pope and consequently above the Pope, absolutely. Second, there is no power of the church over the Pope. So we keep in line with the fact that the first C is judged by nobody. The third is that the church's power has for its object, A, the application of the papal power to such a person and designated him by the election. So this is gonna be the link which binds the Pope to the papacy in the election, which we have already seen, that the, the church has authority over that in, in in the election. Second, the separation of the power with such a person by declaring him heretical and to be avoided by the faithful. So this is how the separation happens if the church declares him heretical and to be avoided by the papacy. And this is going to be is this is going to happen, which we're going to get into uh, later, by what's called a dispositive way. So we remove something absolutely. Uh, let's say God wants to uh, zap out of existence. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't th- This. This, ah, no, that wouldn't work. Who should I use for an example? I don't know. Who's the last person who has commented? Uh, James, James. So James is right there, James. So James, God wants to zap out of existence, James, right now. So what God could do is God could absolutely remove the existence of his body and soul. He has absolute authority over the existence of James. Now, let's say I wanted to remove the existence of James right now. How would I do it? I can't absolutely remove uh, any sort of um, the existence of James. It's impossible because the soul is mortal. But what I can do is I can... Uh, Make it in such a way that his soul is separated from his body. I'm acting upon the connection between his soul and body. And how do I do that? I make his his, uh, matter, that is his body, ill-disposed to receive his form, which is known as murder. If you kill somebody, you are not absolutely zapping them out of existence. What you're doing is you're making their matter, that is their body, not disposed to uh, be connected with their soul. You're, disposed, you're, you're doing it dispositively. You're not doing it absolutely. And in the same way, the church is said to separate um, the body from the soul in that he makes the, the pope not disposed to receive the form that is the papacy. And how does this ill disposition happen? by declaring him heretical and avoided by the faithful. Because a man who is declared heretical and is avoided by the entire body is not apt to be the head. Therefore, there is a a disposition which is placed in him by the church uh, acting upon the connection, which makes him ill-disposed to receive the papacy. So that is the way it happens. So I I hope that illustration makes it clear. The first thesis is said in contradiction to Saint Bellarmine. It is obvious on two accounts. First the fact that a penitent pope before the third admonition would not be deposed. for how can it be such if he is already deposed de facto? So I guess you could uh, you could explain it like there's some sort of reconnection that happens. he's deposed ipso facto quod say uh, but there is uh, he's kind of reelected uh, when he becomes penitent but this doesn't really make sense. Second, this is reflected in the case of lower bishops, who, as John of St. Thomas notes, no matter how visible is their heresy, and although he incurs an excommunication, does not lose ipso facto the episcopal jurisdiction and power until he's declared such by the church and deposed. So, everybody who is in Germany right now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. All of your popes, all of your popes, all of your bishops are probably heretics. Now, do they still have the jurisdiction to uh, carry out the sacraments which require jurisdiction? Do they still have all of the uh, ability of jurisdiction right now? Yes, because they have not been declared such by the church and deposed. So that is a a second reason of support for the first thesis. And that is the thesis that the heretical pope is not deprived of the pontificate um, ipso facto. Second. The second thesis is said in contradiction to the second extreme and first moderate position. It is evident on faith, de fide, that the Pope has received his power directly from Christ our Lord and submitted the entire church to him. Therefore, it would be incoherent babbling to say that there could be an earthly power higher than him to judge him on that supposition. This is pretty clear, actually. And then the third one. The third thesis is where the entire crux of the theological argument stands. And that's the thesis that the third is that the church has pow- church's power for its object, a, the application of papal power to such a person and designated him by the election and b, the separation of the power with such a person by declaring him heretical and avoid by the faithful. So, and it solves the difficulty frequently cited between the absolute power of the Pope and the duty of the church to judge. And I think to be honest, that, uh, I think this is the only fitting way to reconcile the two, the absolute power of the Pope on the one hand and the duty of the church to judge on the second hand. I I don't think Bellarmine's position uh, really is able to do it justice. I do not think so. Rather than acting upon the Pope and judging him, rather the church acts upon the link between the man and the office in declaring the Pope a heretic, The church acts ministerially and dispositively to dissolve the link. While the church who is disposing, deposing, the church is his minute, while it is Christ who is deposing, sorry, the church is his minister in this task, thus retaining the hierarchy of authority present. That this is possible is seen in the very election of the Pope. For the church has a, uh, the church as a minister forms the link between the man and the office. while Christ immediately gives the power of the papacy. So also can the church dissolve that link, while Christ immediately takes that power. Concerning the specific mode of the exercise of this power, it is said to be di- dispositive. That is, a certain disposition is being placed in a subject, the man, wherein the form papacy cannot exist in that subject. And again, this would just be like uh, be just like murder, as you are placing a certain disposition in the body of a man, whereby the form of his soul cannot exist in that subject. John of St. Thomas gives the following illustration, and he's going to uh, give the same illustration I just gave, because guess who I learned it from? It is clear in the case of an agent who corrupts a man, that is, kills a man, he does not destroy the form, the soul, but it induces the dissolution of the form by putting in the matter a disposition without which the form cannot subsist. Again, what I just said. In this, the loss of the papacy is not directly affected by the church, which would cause issues in the absolutely absolute authority of the papacy. Rather, it is a consequence of the action of the church. Notice, it's not primarily, it's not simplicator, it's secundum quid. It's in, in a certain relation, not in itself. A certain relation that is dispositive, uh, ministerial, not uh, not not a way in which would go against the absolute authority of the papacy. When the church declares that the pope is a person to be avoided, that disposition is placed between the church and the pontiff, without which the pontificate cannot stand. And thus the pontificate is so dissolved ministerially and dispositively by the church, by the authority of Christ, in the same manner as the church in choosing the pontiff by the election, she ultimately disposes him to receive the collation of power by Christ the Lord. There you go. It's just like the election of the pontiff. You you don't have... An issue with power with the election, you should not have an issue of power with the deposition. That principle stands. There, there's an analogy between the two. Okay, now I consider two objections. Uh, I will, I will um, still go over these objections because I can. But real quick, I'm going to check. I dodged being zapped out of existence by a hair. Thank God for chat delay. (laughs) So true. Okay, going back. So objection one. St. Bellarmine teaches that a pope who is a heretic has lost his office. A layman can judge one who has lost his office. Therefore, any layman can judge a heretical pope. That's going to be bread and butter argument. So to the first objection, I distinguish the major premise. That is, I distinguish the premise that St. Bellarmine teaches that a Pope who is a heretic has lost his office. St. Bellarmine teaches that he has lost his office coad se in itself. I concede that. He teaches that he has lost his office coad nos in relation to us denied. Therefore, I counter distinguish the minor premise, which just means to uh, distinguish the minor premise that is, a layman can judge one who has lost his office in the opposite way. A layman can judge one who has lost his office, quad nos, that is, one who has lost his office uh, according to us, conceded. So if the church uh, deposes uh, by declarative sentence the Pope, yeah, I would concede that any layman can judge him because he's not the Pope. But one can judge one who has merely lost his office Quad say denied so before that deposition happens you cannot do it this is in accordance with um with st robert bellamy's teaching and i'm taking it in argument too but down here i clarify further in the Thomistic view we may merely deny the major premise in either case the conclusion does not follow in nobody's view does this follow nobody's view does this follow if there hasn't been that declarative sentence so uh, Bishop Purcell, addressing Vatican I, writes, if he denies any dogma of the church held by every, by a true believer, he is no more, uh, no more pope than either you or I, therefore. So I deny the hidden premise. That is that the speech of a certain bishop at a certain ecumenical council as the binding forth beyond that of a certain bishop's individual ordinary episcopal magisterium, because this is really just. An, an individual address. So this quote gets brought up all the time. Uh, it's just an individual address of a bishop. It, it holds the force of if I got my bishop to, I don't know, uh, share this article on Twitter or something, it, it would be just as authoritative. Further concerning the antecedents, uh, that is um, what the bishop has said, uh, it is to be taken in the same sense as St. Bellarmine's words are taken as is clear from his preceding words, the council of bishops could depose him for heresy. So there you go. He's just saying what Bellarmine says, and this is being taken out of context. Further, the council fathers at the First Vatican Council explicitly refused to answer such a question, i.e. papal heresy. Further, I can merely negate the words of a bishop with that of a cardinal that is caged in. Okay, so this is the first part of the stream, and I'm going to take a quick break, and I am going to come back in, I don't know, five minutes, and we are going to get into... John St. Thomas's exact words so you know that I'm not making up any of this. How's everybody doing? I'm back. So before we get started, I just wanted to make sure I let you guys know. If you go on Amazon.com, you look up Austin Woodbury, Austin, W-O-D-B-U-R-Y. What you're going to see is you're going to see three glorious works. One, Sanctifying Grace by Austin Woodbury. Second, True and False Capitalism, a Catholic Analysis. And third, The Bodily Assumption of Mary. Austin Woodbury was a student of Gary Gould Lagrange. He is absolutely amazing. And um, if you look at Dr. Matthew Minard's comments on Woodbury, he says he's the best uh Thomistic philosopher and theologian who wrote in English. He is just absolutely spectacular. He wrote the best manuals, just amazing. So I am slowly but surely getting his works back into print. So make sure you check those out. Uh, Helps me out and also helps you out. So now let us get back in. Godspeed on this work. Thank you, River Ron. You are very generous. So I'm going to, before we begin, pray the collect for feast day of St. Matthew, because you guys all need to the string. This is the worst. The string like ripped off of my breviary. So, Okay. Let us pray. Almighty God, who by thy blessed Son didst call St. Matthew from the receipt of custom to be an apostle and evangelist, grant us grace to forsake all covetous desire and inordinate love of riches, and to follow the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, all the ends. Amen. Let us get back to it. So, what we're going to be looking at now in this second part is to show that I'm not making it up to you guys. We're going to be looking at John of Saint Thomas, uh, his work directly, and uh, that up. I should have this pulled up already. We're going to be looking at directly his uh, work on the deposition of the Pope. Um, it's very very short, so I'm going to be able to uh, be able to go through this entire thing. It's going to be glorious, and it's mostly uh, since I provide a lot of context. I am not going to uh, not going to comment too too much, but I'm just going to really show you that what I said not made up, not made up at all. That this is actually uh, what John of Saint Thomas said, and uh, this is this is legitimate. Uh, this isn't something which I just uh, kind of pulled out of bag. And then we're gonna, after that, look at Bellarmine's work uh, that John of St. Thomas is going to mention. Then Bellarmine's going to be referring back to Cajetan, who John of St. Thomas was really uh, following in this work. And then we're going to look back uh, at the end. We're going to be looking at the tradition of the theologians when it comes to some of the issues that are brought up by John of St. Thomas. So, um, we're going to be looking at Alphonsus Liguri, Gary Goulegrand. We're going to be looking at a lot of uh, Banyez too. Uh, the Salamancans, We're going to be looking at a lot of uh, fun Thomistic authors when it, comes to, when it comes to this. So, and before I wanted to begin, I saw that I should have a commercial break. I've wanted to record a commercial, but um, I just haven't gotten to to it so there you go that's what i wanted to comment on so uh considering john of st thomas wrote before vatican one does this weaken the argument as he cites Gratian's decretals as to whether a pope could be deposed which were superseded by the 1917 code okay great question so when it comes to uh the disciplinary actions of the church in her canon law like like this example of the deposition of the pope There is a sort of quasi uh, doctrinal authority that comes not in itself, so simplicator, but secundum quid, that is in a different manner. So uh, it would be extremely impious to say that uh, the church had erred so grievously with her her canon law in Gratians decretals, just as it would be impious to say, uh, because if we think about the 1917 code of canon law, um, not, not that uh, if you're gonna come at it from this direction, the 1917 Code of Canon Law was in in effect for 70 years, uh, really 65, 70 years. Gratian's Decretals were in in it, they were in effect for like um, I'm trying to think of when Gratian was writing, but probably seven, eight hundred years uh, if if I'm getting my my history on Gratian uh, correct. If you ever read Gratian's Decretals, it's kind of, um, kind of insane. Uh, Oh, he died eleven forty-five. So yeah, that would have been uh, almost eight hundred years. So it's very, very difficult to, um, to to say that the canon law that was in effect for eight hundred years, which theologians had uh, universally argued from, was just in that bad. Uh, of an error in order to just absolutely flop when it came to that. So I, I, that, that would be that would be my uh, response to that comment right there. So uh, sorry for the constant buggering, but is the content on your website something I need to pay or subscribe for in order to obtain? Just wondering, forgive me, I'm fairly new here. Uh, no. Uh, when it comes to my normal articles, uh, completely free, uh, I do do a, um, a series called Annotated Thomist. So each day, and I haven't been doing it for the last week because I've been working on uh, something else, and I'm going to give my Annotated Thomas subscribers uh, something uh, special in order to thank them for their patience with me. But uh, when it comes to uh, the Annotated Thomas ar- articles, which are just my daily commentary on a section from St. Thomas, that is, I think, uh, it's like two bucks a week or something like that. But, yeah, everything else is completely free when it comes to my articles. Okay, so I will begin. So introduction. Uh, I affirm that the Pope can lose the pontificate in three ways. Through natural death, pretty obvious, voluntary renunciation, and by deposition. The first cause, a case there is no difficulty. About the second case, there is an uh, express provision in canon law. And uh, about the third case of losing the pontificate, many difficulties arise. To make this brief, we can reduce all these problems to two main headers. One, under what circumstances a deposition can be made. Two, and by what power this deposition should be made. On the first point, we will uh, mention three main cases in which a deposition can take place. The first is the case of heresy or infidelity. The second is the case of perpetual madness. And the third is the doubt about the validity of the election. So we're not going to be going over one. Uh, we're not going to be going over two because uh, he actually does have sections on this. And it would be interesting to see what he says on it. If there's a translation, but uh, I'm just going to be covering number one heresy or infidelity. So, can a deposition occur in cases of heresy or infidelity? Concerning the case of heresy, theologians and canon lawyers have disputed very much. It is not necessary to dwell at length. However, there is an agreement among the doctors on the fact that the Pope may be deposed in case of heresy. There is agreement on this. We will maintain them in the discussion of the difficulty. A specific text is found in the decree of Gratian distinction 40 chapter C Papa, where it is said on earth, no mortal shall presume to reproach any faults to the pontiff because he who has to judge others should not be judged by anyone unless he is found deviating from the faith notice unless he is found deviating from the faith. This exception obviously means that in the case of heresy, a judgment could be made of the Pope. The same is confirmed uh, in letter of Hadrian two, which we already read. Also, and then this is really interesting, uh, Pope St. Clement says in his first epistle that St. Peter taught that a heretical pope must be deposed. And this is, uh, there's a thread on Twitter from um, the account of, uh, the account is called um, Cardinal Ottaviani. Um, He he went, he did a long thread on the fact that this is, uh, it was accidentally included within uh, Pope St. Clement's uh, first epistle. Theological argument. The reason is that we must separate ourselves from heretics, according to Titus 3.10. Now, one should uh, not avoid one that remains in the s- sovereign pontificate. On the contrary, the church should instead be united to him as her supreme head and communicate with him. Therefore, if the Pope is a heretic, either the church should communicate with him or must be deposed from pontificate. Those, this is called a disjunction right here. It's a disjunctive premise. You either communicate with the Pope or he be deposed, because uh, this would be contradictory to Titus three ten. If you uh, if you took the third option of communing with a heretic, the uh, first uh, solution leads to obvious destruction of the church uh, and has inherently a risk that the whole ecclesiastical government errs if she has to follow a heretical head. In addition, as the heretic is an enemy of the church, natural law provides protection against such a pope according to the rules of self-defense. Because she can defend herself against an enemy, as is a heretical pope, therefore she can act in justice against him. So in any case, it is necessary that such a pope must be deposed. Okay, so reply to an objection. Let me take a sip of my coffee first. Christ, the Lord, tolerated in the chair of Moses infidels and heretics like the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees have sitten on the chair of Moses. All things therefore whatsoever they shall do, observe and do, but according to their works do ye not, for they say and do not. But the Pharisees were heretics and taught false doctrines according to the various superstitions and traditions, says St. Jerome in his commentary in chapter 8 of Isaiah. St. Epiphanius lists their errors, and Josephus and uh, Baronius. So on the chair of Peter 2, one must tolerate a heretic and an infidel, because he can define a heresy or an error, and thus the church will always remain, because he cannot define a heresy or an error and thus the church will always remain free of heresy there that's their argument i answer that christ the lord did not order that pharisees should be tolerated in the chair of moses even if they are declared heretics or that any heretic or infidel should be kept in the priesthood or in the papacy but he only gave this counsel in case they are tolerated there so if we have currently a heretical pope so let's say let's 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 take the diamonds position Let's concede the minor premise as we talked about before. Let's, uh, this is the Dominicans of Auvrier. Uh This is what they hold. Let's pretend Pope Francis is a heretic. We should do as our Lord says. We should all things thereof whatsoever they shall do, observe and do. But according to their works, do ye not? For they say and do not. That is what we do. This is the counsel of our Lord in case we have infidels and heretics on the throne of St. Peter or uh, in the Episcopacy. If they are not yet declared and deposed from their chair, the faithful should listen to them and obey them because they keep their power and jurisdiction. However, the church wants to depose them heretic and no longer tolerate them. Christ, the Lord, does not prohibit by the words reported above. There is no prohibition against declaring them a heretic here. None at all. None at all. Okay, now the two conditions. But we need to know if the Pope can be deposed in any case of heresy in whatever form of being a heretic, or if some additional conditions are needed without which heresy alone is not sufficient to depose the pontiff. I answer that the pontiff cannot be deposed and lose the pontificate, except if two conditions are fulfilled together. One, that the heresy is not hidden, but public and legally notorious. Two, uh, then that he must be incur- pernicious, per- per- pertinacious, oh, I can never pronounce anything, Impedded, impediment, impedit. Okay you know what I mean if both conditions are fulfilled, the pontiff may be deposed, but not without them and even if he is not unfaithfully unfaithful interiorly interiorly, however if he be- behaves externally as a heretic, he can be deposed and the sentence of deposition will be valid. Again, external, public, legally notorious not hidden or occult. Concerning the first requirement, some among Catholics are of a different opinion, saying that even for an occult heresy, uh, the, the pontiff loses papal jurisdiction, which is based on the true faith and right confession of faith. Supporting this opinion, we have Torquemada and others, and this is going to be Bellarmine's um, second position, I think, that Bellarmine lists. Uh, some others think that it is necessary that the heresy must be external and provided in the external forum in order for the pontiff to... Uh, can be deposed from the pontificate, thus Soto, Cano, who believe that the contrary opinion is not even probable. Uh, Cajetan, uh, Suarez, uh, Azorius, and Bellarmine. The principle is that occult heretics, as long as they are not condemned by the church and being separated by her, belong to the church and are in communion with her, as like being moved from the exterior, even if they do not receive any more interiorly the vital movement. Therefore, the pontiff, if he is an occult heretic, is not separated from the church. Therefore, he can still be the head since he is still a part and member, even if he is not a living one. A confirmation of it is that the priests of a lower order can exercise the power of order and jurisdiction without faith because a heretical priest can confer the sacraments and give absolution in cases of extreme need. The second condition, in order uh, to be able to depose the pope, namely that he is guilty of... uh, pertinacious heresy sorry, is evident because if someone is ready to be corrected and not per, uh, per, impedib, sorry, in heresy is not considered to be heretical. Therefore, if the Pope is ready to be corrected, he should not be deposed as a heretic. The Apostle Paul prescribes to avoid heretics only after the first and second correction. If he comes to repentance after the correction, he should not be avoided. Therefore, as the Pope must be deposed for heresy under this apostolic precept, it follows that if he can be corrected, he should not be deposed. And this in itself uh, goes against the set of contest uh, position. On the deposition of the Pope, and I'm going to check the live chat. We need the uh, the young Pope ASAP. Militant Thomist starting the stream reviewing the spiciest debate at eight AM. Yeah, you're West Coast. It's almost eleven here. It's almost eleven here. Okay. Yeah, you need uh Salza. I, I agree. He has a good um Who's the author of the refutation you're citing? Uh, John of St. Thomas. Okay, I checked everything. Now I'm back. Okay, so on the deposition of the Pope, it remains to deal with the second problem. By what authority should the deposition of the Pope be done? And the whole issue revolves around two points. One, the declarative sentence by which the Pope's crime is declared. Should it be made by the cardinals or by the general council? And if by the general council, by what authority should it be assembled? And on what basis should this council judge the case? Two, the deposition itself, which must follow the declarative sentence of the crime. Is it made by the power of the church or immediately by Christ being supposed made the declaration? One, who should pronounce the declarative sentence of the crime of heresy? The declarative sentence should be not made by the cardinals. And I'm going to kind of skip over this section. I'm not trying to hide anything, but uh, this is not really the crux of the debate, and we already covered that. Okay, On which authority is the Pope deposed? This is important. Diverse opinions. On the second point, namely on which authority the declaration of heresy and the uh, deposition are to be made, there is dissension among theologians, and it is not clear by whom that statement should be made, because it is an act of judgment and jurisdiction, which no one can exert on the Pope. Cajetan, in his treatise on the Pope's authority, refers to two extreme and two middle positions. The two extremes, one says that the Pope is removed without human judge by the mere fact of being a heretic, Bellarmine and Suarez. On the opposite, there are those who say that the Pope has truly a power above himself and by which he can be judged. This opinion is not sustained anymore. Not sustained. Cajetan considered it false. The two main positions, uh, middle positions. One says the Pope has no superior on earth in absolute terms, except in case of heresy. The other says that he has no superior on earth, neither absolutely nor in case of heresy, but only in a ministerial way. Again, this is exactly what I said. Just as the church has a ministerial power to choose the person of the Pope but not to give power. And this is done immediately by Christ in the same manner in the deposition, which is the destruction of the bond, which the papacy has attached to such a person in particular. The church has the power to depose him in a ministerial manner, but it is Christ who deprives his power with authority. Notice with authority. So we're only ministers. He is the only one with authority. The first opinion is that of Azorius. The church is above the Pope in case of heresy. The second is of Cajetan. Who deprives, uh, develops it extensively. Bellarmine quotes it and combats it, which uh, we're going to be going over here soon, especially in two points. Cajetan said that the manifest uh, heretic pope is not ipso facto removed and that the pope is actually deprived really and authoritatively by the church. Similarly, Suarez reproaches Cajetan for saying that the church, in the case of heresy, is above the pope as a private person, but not as a pope. This, in fact, Cajetan did not say. He holds that the church is not above the pope absolutely, even in the case of heresy, but she is above the link joining the pontificate with such a person and that she dissolves it in the same manner as the church has joined it in election. And that this power of the church is ministerial because only Christ the Lord is simplicator, superior to the pope. We're only superior to the pope. Second, well, the church is only superior to the pope, secundum quid, when it comes to um, ministerially and only above the link so a lot of good distinctions being made bellamy and suarez therefore think that the pope by the very fact that he is a manifest heretic and declared impediment it, uh, impenitent, is immediately deposed by christ the lord and not by any authority of the church and notice even with even with um Bellarmine and Suarez, uh, the way in which John St. Thomas, in disagreeing with them, is representing their opinion. It has that quod saying quod no distinction that by the very fact that he is manifest heretic and declared, is immediately deposed by Christ the Lord and not by any authority of the Church. Notice, so really the the differences are not as much as we think, and the differences uh, chafe against the uh, opinion of the set of economists. So now the opinion of Cajetan. Thus, the opinion of Cagetine contains three points. The first is that the heretic pope is not deprived of the pontificate and deposed by the mere fact of heresy considered separately. So this is against Bellamy. The second is that the church has neither power nor superiority over the pope. About his power, even in the case of heresy, neither is the church's power above the power of the pope, consequently above the pope absolutely, only ministerially and secundum quid. And third is the church's power has for its object first, the application of the papal power to such a person and designated him by the election. And second, the separation of the power with such a person by declaring him heretical and to be avoided by the faithful. Therefore, although the declaration of a crime is like an antecedent dip- disposition preceding the disposition disposi- itself and that it relates only in a ministerial manner. No, notice it's dip- dispositive in that declaring the crime, it is antecedent and disposes the matter to lose the form of, only ministerially and only to the link. So we're making all of those qualifications. However, it reaches the form itself of this dispositive and ministerial manner insofar as it reaches the disposition. So it aims immediately to the form. So not immediately to the form, only Christ our Lord acts in the form of the papacy. The church only acts to the link and only acts to the... uh, to, to the matter that is the, the, the person himself uh, uh, separated from the form, not by uh, acting absolutely on it, but only by uh, making a certain disposition that could, where the uh, form and matter cannot exist together. Very clear that we make all of those distinctions in the same manner as in the generation and corruption of a man, the begetter neither produces nor ad, uh, ad, ad, aduce, oh, I, I don't, adducts the form and the one who corrupts, it does not destroy it. But the first one produces the combination of the form. The second one, the separation, immediately reaching the dispositions of the matter to the form and through them the form. So when you have generation, um, a a husband and wife come together and do they create the form? Do they create the soul? No, the soul is immediately created by God. But there's a certain disposition of matter, which is presented uh, in in the uh in, in the union that occurs, there's a certain disposition of matter that is the body which is able to receive form and only uh, secondarily, only second of quid does it ever reach the form that is the soul. It doesn't immediately create the soul and in, in a similar manner uh, is, is happening with the with the church uh, in forming the link. Uh, of the papacy and in breaking the link of the papacy because any issues people are going to have with John of St. Thomas's position, you're going to have issues when it comes to the making of a pope. You're going to have these same exact issues. Okay, Cajetan's first point, and uh, we're almost done here. The heretical pope is not deprived of the pontificate and uh, deposed by mere fact of heresy considered separately. The first point is obvious and is not legitimately opposed by Bellarmine. This is going to be going against Bellarmine's position, which if we go against Bellarmine's position, their position is dead in the water, obviously. His truth appears thus. First, because the Pope, no matter how real and public may be his heresy, by the moment he is eager to be corrected, he cannot be uh, deposed. And the church cannot depose him by divine right. For she cannot nor should avoid him, since the Apostle Paul says avoid the heretic after the first and second correction. After the first and second correction. Therefore, before the first and second correction, now, he should not be avoided, and consequently, he should not be deposed. Therefore, it is wrong to say that the Pope is deposed ipso facto as soon as he is a public heretic. He may be a public heretic, but not yet corrected by the Church. Very important. I think this paragraph in itself puts the nail in the coffin. Then, because as Azorius rightly notes, any heretical bishop... No matter how visible is his heresy, and although he incurs an excommunication, does not lose ipso facto the episcopal jurisdiction and power unless he is declared such by the church and post. And again, the uh, the German bishops. Indeed, only the excommunicated is not tolerated. Uh, not tolerated loses jurisdiction ipso facto. Namely, those specifically excommunicated or those who manifestly struck a cleric. Therefore, if a bishop or some other prelate loses not ipso facto his power by the mere external heresy, why the pope would lose it even before the church's declaration, especially since the pope cannot incur excommunication. On the one hand, no excommunication at all, I suppose, is carried by divine law itself. On the other hand, he cannot be excommunicated by any human right because he is superior to any human right. I'm going to check the. uh, That might be a good topic for another video. ensoulment of a child in the womb. We need Militant Thomas, from not punch the Dude, you need, to, uh, you need to get him. Tell him that John of St. Thomas's position will ring in the ears of all. Yeah, debates are a good medium for convincing people, but a bad medium for meaningfully exchanging ideas. See how Ken Ham rhetorically ran circles around Bill Nye when they debated creationism. Yeah, I, wa- I remember watching that debate. Noose. Okay, that is all. So I'm going to get back to Cajetan, and then after this, I promise I'll get to Bellarmine, and then I'll get to the theologians. The church has neither power nor superiority over the pope concerning his power of pope, even in case of heresy. And this is uh, actually uh, completely obvious. So Cajetan's second point, theological argument. This second point of Cajetan, the church has never, in the strict sense, a superior power of the pope, is widely proved above. And again, this is Pretty obvious because the first C is judged by nobody. Cajetan's third point, the power of the church has as its object, the application of the papal power to the person. This is going to be the crux of the matter right here. This is Cajetan's brilliance right here. It's just glorious to watch this. Do you realize what kind of like theological brilliance it took to come up with uh, to be able to correctly uh, form the analog between the election of the Pope and the deposition of the Pope? While also having to explain all of the all of the data of the authorities present before you, it just it just took a brilliant mind. Cajetan was insane. Same with John of St Thomas. Both of them. If we had all of their works translated, um, everybody would be Thomas easily. Because Cajetan is was known as the terror of the Scotists. He was the terror of the Scotists. Okay. The third point follows from the previous two. For the church can declare the crime of the pontiff and proclaim to the faithful that he should be avoided according to divine law, decreeing that a heretic must be avoided. Already went over that. Now, a pontiff who must be avoided by this provision is necessarily prevented from being made the head of the church, for he is a member which she must avoid, and therefore he cannot have an influence on her. This is why, by virtue of such a power, the church dissolves ministerially and dispositively the link of the pontificate with such a person. The implication is clear. An agent that can induce in a subject a disposition that necessarily causes the separation of the form, again, such as uh, murder, a disposition without which the form cannot exist in the subject, has power over the uh, dissolution of the form and acts immediately on the form. So only through uh, a certain disposition of the matter. In order to separate it from the subject and not destroy it, it is clear in the case of an agent who corrupts a man, kills a man. It does not destroy the form, the soul, but it induces the dissolution of the form by putting in the matter, the body, a disposition without which the the soul cannot subsist. Thus, since the church can declare the pontiff as a person to be avoided, she can induce in the person a disposition without which the pontificate cannot stand. The pontificate is so dissolved ministerially and dispositively by the church, by the authority of Christ, in the same manner as the church in choosing the pontiff by the election. She ultimately disposes him to receive the collation of power by Christ, the Lord. And then um, should I? Yeah, it's just not much. When Cajunton says the church acts with authority on the conjunction or separation of the pontiff with the person and ministerially on the papacy itself. We must understand it in the sense that the Church has the authority to declare the crimes of the Pope, as she has the power to choose him to the papacy, and that what she does with authority in the declaration acts at the same time ministerially on the form. So only uh, immediately, not immediately on the form, that is the papacy itself. To join or separate the person, that is the matter, for the form itself absolutely and in itself. The church cannot do anything because the papal power is not submitted to her. So on the uh, absolutely uh, on the form, uh, immediately, the church cannot do anything. Only Christ can do that. But ministerially, dispositively on the matter, the church can do it just as she does with the election of the pope. Canonical argument. This is congruent with the pro- provisions of the law that sometimes affirm that the deposition of the pontiff belongs only to God. And that sometimes in the case of heresy can be judged by his inferiors. Both are true. So. Really, you have to cut this Gordian knot right here. Sometimes it affirms that the deposition of the Pope belongs only to God. Other times, it says that he can be judged by his inferiors. You have to be able to reconcile those this And really, John of St. Thomas' position is the only thing that does it. On the one side, the ejection or deposition of the Pope is reserved only to God in order to be done with authority and from above, as stated in the Decree of Grace in Distinction 79, and in many other places of the law, which says that God has reserved to himself the judgment of the apostolic See. Secondly, the church judges a pontiff in a ministerial and dispositive manner by declaring his crime and presupposing him to be avoided as is stated in the decree of Gratian Distinction 40, Chapter C, Papa, and in Part 2, Chapter Obis. So there you go. That is John of St. Thomas right there. So what we're going to do is we're going to look into Bellarmine in a few places. And we're going to see what Bellarmine's position is. To see whether, okay, John of St. Thomas, we have shown that uh, those, uh, the, the the diamonds would not be able to survive on the opinion of John of St. Thomas. And notice, they're making definitive uh, conclusions from theological opinions, which never a good thing to do. Never a good thing. So on the opinion of John of St. Thomas and Cajetan and the Thomists, they're done. But how about the opinion of Bellarmine? I am arguing that even on the opinion of Bellarmine, they're still dumb. So I'm going to go to my notes real quick. Boom. There you go. And then I'm going to check the live chat real quick. (laughs) <laughs> what is this guy? None of you know anything. You think you know, but you don't. St. Thomas Aquinas even says after he dies, everything he thought he knew was a pile of hay. And that's Aquinas. Be like Jesus. Kind of schizo posting. Byzantine Scotus made young earth creationism legit for Norman Catholics at Pines of Aquinas. So take the good and the bad. So true. Okay, so we're going to be looking in Bellarmine in two places. So the first place is on the Roman Pontiff, Book 20, Chapter 30. And this is what I'm going to argue is his statements quad say. So this is St. Robert Bellarmine arguing uh, that the Pope in himself, considered in itself, is deposed uh, by a public and manifest heresy. That is um, that that is going to be his position in on the Roman Pontiff, and this is the only section people read. And this is all from the Grant translation, by the way. And I did uh, I did talk to Grant before this, and he he helped me out with uh, tracking down some some quotes. So thank you to Ryan Grant. Check out Mediatrix Press. Um, and then this, uh, I'm sorry, this in his De Ecclesia, Book One, Chapter Nine and Twenty One which is going to be his work on the councils, this is going to be his quadnos statements. So unless you're going to have Bellarmine being a schizophrenic between these two sections of the same work, you are going to have to admit that uh, there is a distinction right here between quad se and quadnos in these two different works. So I'm going to get a drink of water and then uh, coffee, then water. Then I'm going to start. It it seems like all the time the Pope was deposed, it's seen as illegitimate as when Emperor Otto II did it. Well, it was illegitimate because Emperor Otto II did it and not an ecumenical council. So let us begin. I'm going to make this bigger. So. The 10th argument, a pope can be judged and deposed by the church in the case of heresy, as is clear from distinction 40, can see Papa. Therefore, the pontiff is subject to human judgment, at least in some case. And this is going to be uh, in the context of St. Robert Bellarmine arguing against, uh, I think it's Calvin, the papacy. I respond, there are five opinions on this matter. The first is that of Albert Pigius, who contends that the pope cannot be a heretic and hence would not be deposed in any case. Such an opinion is probable and can easily be defended as we will show in its proper place. Still, because it is not certain and the common opinion is to the contrary, it will be worthwhile to see what the response should be. If the Pope could be a heretic. So notice right off the bat, most uh, are going to interpret Bellarmine in this section right here as saying that he holds the opinion of pigius and many people. Uh, I think most of the people of Vatican one held the opinion of pigius right here, that, The Pope just cannot be a heretic and just just wouldn't be deposed. But really what uh, St. Bellarmine is doing in the rest of this chapter is kind of riffing on uh, what would happen. Thus, the second opinion is that the Pope in the very instant in which he falls into heresy, even if it is only interior, is outside the church and deposed by God, for which reason he can be judged by the church. That is, he is declared deposed by divine law and deposed de facto if he still refused to yield. This is of Jean uh, de Torquemada, Uh, but it is not proven to me. First, jurisdiction is certainly given to the pontiff by God, but with the agreement of men, as it is obvious, because this man who beforehand was not pope has from men uh, that he would begin to be pope. Therefore, he is not removed by God unless it is through men. Wow. Wow, guys. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. My mic's still on. Very interesting, guys. He is not removed by God unless it is through men. I think, honestly, most of the set of accounts you're going to run into has this has sort of a weird version of Torquemada's position right here. Sort of a weird, very, very weird version. Um, most of them are. And it's just uh, not what Bellarmine believes. He explicitly rejects it. But a secret heretic cannot be judged by men, nor should nor would such a wish to relinquish that power by his own will. Add that the foundation of this opinion is that secret heretics are outside the church, which is false, and we will amply demonstrate this in our tract De Ecclesia. The third opinion is on another extreme, that the Pope is not and cannot be deposed either by secret or manifest heresy. So this one is, can't do it. Torquemada, in the aforementioned citation, relates and refutes this opinion, and rightly so, for it is exceedingly improbable. First, because that a heretical pope can be judged, expressly held the candidacy Papa, distinction 40 with innocent, And what is more, in the Fourth Council of Constantinople, Act 7, the acts of the Roman council under Hadrian are recited. And in those, it was contained that Pope Honorius appeared to be legally anathematized because he has been convicted of heresy. The only reason where it is lawful for inferiors to judge superiors. Here, the fact must be remarked that upon that, although it is probable that Honorius was not a heretic, and that Pope Hadrian II was deceived by corrupted copies of the Sixth Council, which falsely reckoned Honorius was a heretic. We still cannot deny that Hadrian, with the Roman pontiff in the whole Eighth uh, Synod, sensed that in the case of heresy, a Roman pontiff can be judged. Add that it would be the most miserable condition of the church if she should be compelled to recognize a wolf manifestly prowling for the shepherd. So, just... uh, that there's uh, no ability to judge the pontiff. That is clearly wrong. The third opinion, wrong. And then uh, I, the fourth opinion is of Cajetan. There he teaches that a manifestly heretical pope is not ipso facto deposed, but can and ought to be deposed by the church. Now, my judgment, such opinion cannot be defended. And then he's going to go on about Cajetan's opinion. Uh, but I am going to provide uh, John St. Thomas's section uh, referring to this. And it's kind of long and I wanted to. Um, kind of speed through this. So after this, we're going to go to a, the section of John of St. Thomas, where he deals with Bellamy's arguments. Uh, now the fifth opi- a true opinion. So this is going to be what St. Robert Bellamy would say. If notice going back to qualifying this in the first opinion, so Robert Bellamy does not think it's possible. He agreed with pigius yes. but if it were possible, this is what he would say. Now the fifth true opinion is that a Pope who is manifest heretic ceases in himself, so, quod to be pope and head, just as he ceases in himself, notice, quod to be a Christian and member of the body of the church, whereby he can be judged and punished by the church. Notice, there's always this um, quod nos, uh, outward declaration. This is the opinion of all the ancient fathers who teach that manifest heretics soon lose all jurisdiction, and namely, St. Cyprian speaks on Novation, who was a pope in the schism with Cornelius. He cannot hold the episcopacy. Although he was bishop first, he fell from the body of his fellow bishops and from the unity of the church. There he means that Novation, even if he was a true and legitimate pope, still would have fallen from the pontificate by himself if he was separated himself from the church. Same is the opinion of the learned men of our age, as John Doredo teaches. Uh, Those who are cast out as excommunicates or leave on their own and oppose the church, are separated from it, namely heretics and schismatics. He adds in the same work that no spiritual power remains in them, who have departed from the church over those who are in the church. Melchor Cano uh, teaches the same thing when he says that heretics are not part of the church nor members. And he adds in the last chapter, 12th argument, that someone cannot uh, even be informed in thought that he should be head and pope who is not a member nor part. And he teaches the same thing in eloquent words, that secret heretics are still in the church and are parts members, and that a secretly heretical pope is still pope. Others teach the same that we cite in Book One of De Ecclesia. And I'm going to continue on this. This is talking about quod, say, And it's going to become evident uh, when we look at next part. The foundation of this opinion is that a manifest heretic is in no way a member of the church. Notice, this is going to be the foundation of this opinion, which Bellamy said would be true if the pope could be a heretic, as such the foundation of this opinion is that a manifest heretic is in no way a member of the church. That is neither in spirit nor in body, or by internal union nor external. For even wicked Catholics are united in their members in spirit through faith and in body through the secret confession through the confession of faith and the participation of visible sacraments. Secret heretics are united and are members, but only by an external union, just as, on the other hand, good catechumens are in the church only by an internal union and not by an external one. Manifest heretics by no union, as has been proved. And uh, this is going to be what the Thomists historically have um, denied the consequence of. They're going to say, well, actually, you can be um, outside of the church and still be the head, which we're going to get into a bit later. Okay, now everybody and their mother's brother has read and quotes this section from on the Roman pontiff. But I am going to go to a different place. Is De Ecclesia on the councils? And this is gonna be a section on the councils, book one, chapters nine and twenty-one. And I'm gonna check the live chat real quick. Okay, nothing. Nothing too important. Okay, so on the church, specifically referring to on the councils. Therefore, with all of this noted, we must explain in what things legitimate councils consists. I was going to be explaining um in what ways the council is legitimate. And these can be reduced to four, the end, efficacy, matter, and form of councils. Now let us begin with the end, which is the first of all reasons. It will be the first reason that must be briefly explained on account of which councils are usually celebrated. Then from these, it will be determined whether a gathering of councils is necessary or merely useful. Moreover, the particular reasons on account of which councils are celebrated are usually numbered in six. So this is going to be what Bellarmine is covering here. The reasons why councils are celebrated and two are of important note for us. The second reason is schism among Roman pontiffs for a council in the time of Pope Cornelius was celebrated for this very reason. Likewise, another in the time of Pope uh, Damasus, and another in the time of Symmachus, uh, Innocent II, and Alexander III, as well as Pisa and Constance in the time of Gregory the Twelfth and Benedict the Thirteenth. For there is no more powerful remedy than a council, as has often been proved. So, this case of schism of the popes, but this doesn't per se deal with what we're talking about. So, the fourth reason becomes important. The fourth reason is suspicion of heresy in the Roman Pontiff. Suspicion of heresy in the Roman Pontiff—very important. If perhaps it might happen, or if he were, an, uh, if he was a tyrant, for then a general council ought to be gathered, either to depose him, uh, depose the Pope if he should be found a heretic, or certainly to admonish him if he seemed uh, incorrigible in morals. Notice. They gathered to depose the Pope. Quad nos, according to us. As is related in the Eighth Council, uh, general councils ought to impose judgment on controversies arising in regard to the Roman pontiff. General councils, albeit not rashly. For this reason, we read that the Council of Sinvesano, in the case of St. Marcellinus, as well as the Roman councils in the case of Pope Damasus, Sixtus III, and Symmachus, as well as Leo Third and Fourth none of which were condemned by a council. Marcellinus enjoined penance upon himself in the presence of the council, and the rest purged themselves. The fifth reason is doubt whether about the election of the Roman pontiff, For if the cardinals could not or would not create a pope, or certainly if they all died at the same time, or true doubt should arise for another reason, to whom an election of this sort would pertain, would look to a general council to discern in regard to the election of a future pope. Although it does not seem to be realistic to expect that this would ever happen. And again, he does not think that this would ever happen. And he makes this pretty clear throughout his writings. Okay, now the 21st. 21st chapter is another interesting chapter because he's dealing with all of these um, demands that the Lutherans are placing upon uh, the the papists when it comes to celebrating a true ecumenical council. That's going to be what this chapter is about. And uh, there are two of them, I think I listed two of them, that are pretty important when it comes to this question. And it reveals Bellarmine's true uh, opinion. The Lutherans, who call themselves Protestants, propose eight conditions for celebrating a council. First, uh, therefore, they require that before the council occur, all the acts of the Council of Trent be invalidated. Not going to happen. Secondly, that the council be conducted in Germany. Not going to happen. Thirdly, that the Roman pontiff should not summon a council nor pr- preside in it. Not going to happen. Fourthly, that the sentence should be imposed only from divine scripture, not from traditions. Not going to happen. Fifthly, that the decision should not be made in the power of the plurality of votes, but pronounced according to the norm of the divine word. How would that happen? Secondly, uh, sixthly, that the Roman pontiff would absolve all prelates from the oath of fidelity in which they have been bound. Oh, my. Seventh, leave the theologians of the principles and statutes of the Augsburg Confession, no less than bishops and the council, be permitted decisive opinions and voices. Eighthly, that the safe conduct be granted by the emperor. All of these, not going to happen, but what is important is the third condition, which is that the Roman pontiff should not summon the council nor provide in it, but it should be on the other side of those litigating, just as when someone is accused and no man at the same time the judge and the accusing party. The third condition is unjust because the Roman pontiff cannot be deprived of his right to summon councils and preside over them. in whose possession, this right has already been for 1500 years, unless you were first convicted by the legitimate judgment of a council and uh, and is not the supreme pontiff. So the only way this is going to happen is if there is a legitimate judgment of a council, not the legitimate uh, judgment of Brother Peter Diamond on VaticanCatholic.com not the legitimate judgment of some dude with a blog, not even a legitimate judgment of individual prelates. No, the legitimate judgment of a council and is therefore not the Supreme Pontiff quod nos, because this would make no sense. If he was speaking about it, quad say, because he'd already said ipso facto deposed, but no, only when there's that legitimate judgment, are we able to know epistemologically, um, in the order of knowing whether, uh, the pope is deposed and uh, quod say. Moreover, what they say that the same man ought not to be judge and party, I say, has placed in private men, but not for supreme prince. For the supreme prince, as long as he is not declared or judged to have been legitimately been deprived of his rule, is always the supreme judge, even if he litigates with himself as a party. Notice, the supreme prince, as long as he is not declared or judged to have been legitimately deprived of his rule, is always the supreme judge. So, has there been this declaration or judgment of him being deprived of his rule? No. So, who is the supreme pontiff? He is the judge right now. Therefore, private men, when they litigate with their prince, usually appeal from the prince badly represented to represent the same better. And it is confirmed from the ancient histories for when Marcellina sinned and on account of it gathered a council. All the bishops said he could not be condemned by anyone. Rather, he ought to be the judge and the defendant. As Nicholas, the first relates in his epistle to the emperor, Michael, likewise, Sixtus the third, when he was accused of adultery. The emperor gathered a council with the pope's consent. But in that council, no man dared to strike up the case of the pope unless first he would have said to be, uh, he willed the case to be discussed, even if he would be judged by his own judgment, but not judged. It is clear both from the acts of that council and from the epistle of the same Sixtus to the bishops of the East. Next, in the fourth Roman council under Symmachus, we read that all the bishops said the council could be summoned by right unless it were by the Pope, even if he were the one who were accused. For this purpose did not Arius litigate with Alexander on the faith, And still the council of Nicaea Alexander sat because he was bishop as a judge. Likewise, in the third council, Cyril presided in Episcopal judgment. Still, it was on the side of the Nestorians to have the side of those litigating. So also in the fourth council, legates of Pope Leo presided, although the whole case turned the dispute between Leo and Dioscorus. It happens also that the pope in a council is not only the judge, but has many colleagues, that is, All the bishops who, if they would convict convict him of heresy, they could also judge and depose him, even against his will. Therefore, the heretics have nothing. Why would they complain if the Roman pontiff presides at a council before he were condemned? Notice, he has that right before he were condemned, before he is condemned. Important. This goes completely against their idea that somehow the Pope by heresy is deposed, quo nos, by the judgment of some private individual. The sixth condition is unjust and impertinent. What is the sixth condition? Let's go back. Sixthly, that the Roman pontiff would absolve all prelates from the oath of fidelity. The sixth condition is unjust and impertinent. Unjust because inferiors ought not to free from the obedience of superiors unless first he were legitimately deposed or declared not to be superior. So, you, Brother Peter Diamond, you are an Inferior. Now, when are you freed from your obedience to your superior, that is, the Roman pontiff, when he is legitimately deposed or declared not to be superior? How does this happen? Ecumenical council. Just as it would be unjust that as often as imperial assemblies were conducted, the emperor ought to make the oath of fidelity that all the princes must offer in subjection to him free. Moreover, it is not new or recent thing that bishops should furnish an oath of obedience to the pope, as is clear from St. Gregory and from um, this. Likewise, from the 11th Council of Toledo. Furthermore, it is impertinent because the oath does not take away the freedom of the bishops, which is necessary in councils, for they swear they will be obedient to the supreme pontiff, which is understood as long as he is pope, and provided he commands these things which, according to God and the sacred councils, he can command. But they do not swear that they are going away, uh, going to say what they think in the council and that they are going to depose him if he were to clearly prove that he is a heretic so this is all from bishop you know bishop cardinal bellarmine so i'm gonna stop that real quick and i am going to take a shot every time somebody says ipso facto so i'm gonna answer a few questions and then i'm going to take another five minute break and then we are going to finish off this Uh, Pretty long stream. We're going to finish it off with looking at John of St. Thomas's responses to Bellarmine, which I think are very important. And also the history of the Thomists when it comes to whether a manifestly heretical pope is uh, ipso facto. Uh, Take a shot for that. Ipso facto uh, deposed. So I will take a brief break. Look at that. Contracetivacontism is here. Thanks be to God. Reach out to Matt Fred. Go in there and fix this problem, please. Please, I'm begging you. Diamond should read my book. Everybody should read his book. Uh, let me see. Um, send me real quick the the. actually just reach out to me. Um, eventually, I want to do an interview with you. I think that'd be really cool to talk about Jonathan St. Thomas' um, view of uh, papal heresy especially Saint and especially st robert means to feel papal heresy that'd be really great so you can just uh, email me at militantomas.gmail.com so i'll be back okay i am back just making sure everything is going good had to get my charger back okay making sure audio's going fine yep okay let us continue so in this third part and i promise this will be the last part i will not uh go on forever actually actually before before i start um i meant to mention there is my Trusty uh Riviera. i meant to mention that today is what is called a an ember day so a lot of those in the normal latin tradition aren't too um aren't too interested in ember days anymore they don't really know what they are but ember days are the traditional uh days in which seminarians or ordinands are ordained to the priesthood so the church on wednesday and saturday they stop and pray for that intention. Uh, there's what's called uh, partial. Uh, there, there's fasting, uh, which means um, two collations or, or small meals, and then one uh, big meal. Um, and then there's also what's called partial abstinence on Wednesday and Saturday, which means that you only eat meat at one of your meals. And then on Friday, there is fasting and full abstinence, which means two small meals and one normal sized meal. So uh, make sure everybody today, for the intention of um, of an increase in good priests, of holy priests, of priests who will defend the faith, make sure you you all pray for that intention. So towards that intention, I will be praying the um, praying the uh, collect for seminarians. Just pray. Almighty Father, grant that our uh, seminaries may be homes of faith and fruitful study, and that all their men may so learn Catholic truth as to bear its light along their way, and so learn Christ as ever to be found in him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Okay, let us begin. Is he speaking of the ember fast? Yes, I am. I am speaking of the ember fast. I just want to make sure everybody knows. And then also um, make sure if you enjoy what I'm doing and would like to support my work, you go over to patreon.com slash militant Thomist, or you can go to subscribestar.com slash militant dash Uh That really, really does help out uh, for me to continue what I keep doing. Um, my patrons do have a, a say in kind of how I'm going to as, as a bunch of good counselors, uh, how I'm going to continue to tweak what I do. So if you like things like this, uh, make sure uh, you become a supporter and let me know. There's a lot of cool uh, benefits that you get from being a patron. So I would much appreciate that. Okay, let us get right into it. So this is going to be the second part of John St. Thomas's text. And what he's going to do here is he's going to reply to the objections of Bellarmine and Suarez against his view, which I think is going to helpfully clarify because a lot of these uh, arguments are what are brought forward by the diamonds against uh, our position. You, you saw it in the in the debate yesterday where he kept asking, do you think Pope Francis has the faith? Do you think Pope Francis has the faith? And what I would say is I would just bypass the objection and say, you know, that doesn't um, really fit. The objection is the heretic is not a member so he cannot be the head of the church. I would say, well, I just deny that premise. Uh, you can call him a heretic all day, every day. Um, I don't really care. I'm going to bypass that premise. Uh, it's not really my thing. Uh, you, you saw in, um, in if you go over to Lofton Street, that's kind of what he's covering. He's covering the minor premise right there. He's covering whether they're correct about what they say of uh, of Pope Francis being a heretic or uh, the various uh, Vatican II or the various post-conciliar popes being her- heretical. Uh, that's not really my concern. Uh, I don't like to really read into stuff like that. I'm not really interested That's not really my area of study. What is my area of study is the major premise, uh, which has to do with the theology behind papal deposition. So objection one, a heretic is not a member, so cannot be the head of the church. Bellarmine objected that the Apostle St. Paul says that we must avoid the heretic after two admonitions. That is to say, after he clearly appears pertinacious before any excommunication and sentence of a judge, as St. Jerome says in his commentary, for heretics separate themselves by the heresy itself, per se, from the body of Christ. And here is his reasoning. A non-Christian cannot be pope, for he who is not a member of the church cannot be the head. Now, a heretic is not a Christian, as commonly says the fathers, thus a manifest heretic cannot be pope. One cannot object that a character remains in him, because if he remains pope because of a character, since it is indelible, it cannot be it could never be deposed. This is why the fathers commonly teach that a heretic because of heresy and, and regardless of excommunication is deprived of any jurisdiction and power, as does St. Cyprian, St. Ambrose, and St. Jerome. I answer to Bellarmine that the heretic should be avoided after two admonitions made with the church's authority and not according to private judgment. Indeed, a great confusion in the church would follow. And this is the chief argument against the said of contests, A great confusion would follow. If it was allowed that the admonition is made by a private man, and that the manifestation of this heresy having been made, without being declared by the church and proclaimed to all, in order that they avoid the pontiff, that all should be required to avoid, for a heresy of the pope cannot be public for all the faithful on the report of a few. This is obvious. And this report, not being legal, does not require that all believe it and avoid the pontiff. So, you, again, this isn't anything which is in accordance with the canons. So why should I listen to Brother Peter Diamond? And therefore, as the church proclaims him legally elected by legally designating him for all, it is necessary that she depose him by declaring and proclaiming him as a heretic to be avoided. Therefore, we see that this has been practiced by the church. When the case of the deposition of the pope, the cause itself was first addressed by the general council before the pope was declared no pope, as we have above we have said above. Therefore, it is not because the Pope is a heretic, even publicly, that he will ipso facto cease to be Pope before the declaration of the church and before she proclaims him to be avoided by all the faithful. And when St. Jerome says that a heretic separates himself from the body of Christ, he does not exclude a judgment of the church, especially in such a serious manner as the deposition of a Pope, but it indicates only the quality of the crime which excludes per se from the church without any further sentence, at least from the moment he is declared heretic by the church. Indeed, even if the crime of heresy separates itself, ex se, uh, of the church, however, in relation to us, so quad nos, the separation is not understood to have been made. So not under, the, the fact is not understood without the statement. So we cannot understand epistemologically that the Pope is separated, even under Bellarmine's view. You can't understand that the Pope is separated, that the Pope is a heretic deserving of deposition, unless it is declared by the Church. And the same thing from the reason added by Bellarmine. Uh, A non-Christian who is such in itself and in relation to us, quod se et quod nos, cannot be Pope. However, if he is not in itself a Christian because he has lost the faith, but if in relation to us he is not legally declared being infidel or heretic, as obvious as it may appear in private judgment, he still in relation to us, quo ad nos, a member of the church, and therefore the head. Accordingly, a judgment of the church is required, through which he is declared or pronounced as being a non Christian to be avoided. And then he ceases in relation to us, quo ad nos, to be pope. Consequently, Previously, he did not cease to be himself at say and say, because all what he did was valid in itself. And then um, I'm going to skip the other objections. You can read them if you want. But I think when we go over here to the annexes, which is going to be covering this question up here of this argument of a heretic is not a member, so cannot be head of the church. It made a lot more sense to me when I read these annexes. So first is going to be Domingo Banez, who was an amazing uh, Salamancan of the 16th century. This is what he's going to write in his um, commentary commentary on the Summa. So in his commentary on the Summa Theologica, he defends the view that if the supreme pontiff falls into heresy, he does not lose immediately the papal dignity before he is deposed by the church. He explains that a number of theologians believe that the church, once he becomes a heretic, immediately loses its power. But the opinion he defends is that of Cajetan, of which he summarized the arguments. One, the other bishops, if they become heretics, retain their episcopal dignity until they are deposed by the pope. So why wouldn't it be the same with the pope? Two, if the pontiff once fallen into heresy is ready to amend, he should not be deposed, as even those who hold the opposite view admit, so uh, he does not cease to be pope. He then examines an objection, and this is going to be very important, against his thesis, and this is the most interesting passage for our study. One objects that the supreme pontiff ceases to be head of the church when he falls into heresy, and therefore he ceases to be pope. Indeed, as soon as he falls into heresy, he ceases to be a member of the church who has to be its head, although um, some disagree with this. One easily answers this objection with the doctrine we uh, we have given while explaining the definition of the church. The pontiff is not said to be head of the church because of his holiness or his faith. Because it is not thus that he influences the other members, but rather is said to be the head of the church because of his ministerial office, which aims to govern the church by defining the truth, by establishing laws, by administering sacraments, all of which are carried out according externally, according to a visible ecclesiastical hierarchy and almost palpable. So he doesn't need the influx of of grace in order to dispense it ministerially or instrumentally besides the fact that the pontiff because of his heresy ceases to be a member of the church but he ceases to receive from him the spiritual influence for his own sanctification does not prevent him of being called the chief member of the church namely its head in relation to the ecclesiastical government so while it's extremely odd it's not impossible logically speaking Similarly, the head of the state is said to be head of the republic. As the notion of membership is employed metaphorically, we have said above that there may be different points of view of the metaphor. According to the one view, the pontiff is not a member of Christ or the church. And from another, he is a member. So we have to ask whether qua pontiff, the pontiff is only head or is head and member. Now, the Carmelites of Salamanca, their composition of the Cursus Theologicus, extends over 70 years during the last three quarters of the 17th century. It is renowned uh, theological course, and it is amazing. They ask if the Pope as an individual doctor can become a heretic. They cite some other authors who think it is not possible, and they continue the contrary view, which states that the pontiff as a private doctor can err not only in secondary objects, but even matters of faith, and not just with a non-culpable error coming from ignorance or negligence, but also with pertinacity so that he is a heretic, is much more probable and more common among theologians. So this is the more common view. Among the reasons they give in favor of their opinion is this one. Because the church may depose the pontiff of his dignity, as Cajeton shows in Melchor Cano, but this power to dispose is not vain in the church, and it cannot be reduced to act except if the pontiff errs in the faith. So this error may be in the popes as a private person. Now Billuart, uh, Charles Rene Billuart is a French Thomist theologian. He composed a theology course that in, uh, enjoys high reputation. In the treatise on the Incarnation, Billuart defends the thesis that Christ is not the head of heretics, even a cult, and this is something that Father Gérard Lagrange. Uh, follows, it is objected that several doctors, Cajetan, Soto, Cano, Suarez, etc., say that the Pope, fallen into occult heresy, remains the head of the Church. So he must be a member. Billuart denies the conclusion. There is a difference between being constituted a head by the fact that one is influencing all the members, and being made a member by the fact that one is receiving an influx in itself. So the way in which the head and the way in which the members are. Um, are related to the body is completely different. This is why, while the pontiff who fell into occult heresy keeps the jurisdiction by which he influences the church by governing her, thereby he remains the head, but as, as uh, he no longer receives the vital influx of Christ's faith or charity, who is the invisible and first head, he cannot be said to be a member of Christ or of the church. So the, the ministerial head does not need to be a part of the body. Instance, uh, and this is an objection, It is repugnant to be head of body without being a member, since the head is the primary member. I distinguish the first sentence. It is repugnant to a natural head, I agree. To a moral head, I deny. For example, Christ is the moral head of the church, but he is not a member. This is the most obvious example. The head of the church, not a member. The reason for the difference is that the natural head cannot have an influence on other members without receiving the vital influx of the soul. This has to do with the natural head, but the moral head, as the pontiff is, can exercise the jurisdiction in the government over the church and its members, although he is not informed by the soul of the church, which are faith and charity, and that he does not receive any vital influx. So he can be a member of the body of the church. He just cannot be a member of the soul of the church. In other words, the pope is made a member of the church through the personal faith which he can lose, and the head of the church by the jurisdiction and the power which he can be recon- reconciled with an in internal heresy. Then in another place, in the treatise on faith, Billuart defends the following thesis: heretics even manifest, unless being denounced by name or by leaving the church themselves, keep the jurisdiction and absolve validly. He considers the question of the case of a pope, which is a special case who receives his jurisdiction not from the church but directly from Christ. It is nowhere stated that Christ continues to give jurisdiction to a manifestly heretical Pope for this can be known by the church and she can get another pastor. However, however, the common sentence holds that Christ by special provision for the common good and peace of the church continues to give jurisdiction to the pontiff, even who is a manifest heretic until he is declared manifestly heretical by the church. Again, there is the common sentence, common opinion, which holds that Christ will just continue to give jurisdiction to a manifest heretic for the good of the church. It needs to be proved that he would not against the common sentence of the church. In the treatise on the rules of faith, Bill O'Art defends the following thesis. The sovereign pontiff is superior to any council by authority and jurisdiction. It is objected that the pontiff is subject to the judgment of the church in the case of heresy, why then he would be subject also in other cases. He replies, this is because in the case of heresy and not in other cases, he loses the pontificate by the fact itself of his heresy. How could remain head uh, of the church he who is no longer a member? This is why he is subject to the judgment of the church, not in order to be removed since he has already deposed himself by heresy and he has rejected the pontificate, but in order to be declared a heretic. And thus that he will be known to the church that he is not any more pontiff before this statement of the church. It is not permitted to refuse him obedience because he keeps jurisdiction until then, not by right, as it were, still pontiff, but in fact, by the will of God and accordingly uh, disposing it for the common good of the church. Another objection remarked that the church would be deprived of a remedy if she could not subject the pope uh, to the council in the case that he would be harmful and would seek to subvert her. Bill replied that if the Pope sought to harm her in the faith, he would be manifestly heretical and he would thereby lose the pontificate. However, it should be necessary a declaration of the church in order to deny him obedience as we have stated above. If the Pope would Harm the church otherwise than in the faith. Some say that one could resist him by the force of arms, however, without losing his superiority. St. Thomas Aquinas said it would be necessary to appeal to God in order to correct him or taking him away from the world. So, appeal to God. That's... Bill War prefers to think that whereas God governs and sustains his church with a, sep- a special providence, he would not permit, as he has not permitted it so far, that this situation would happen. And if he permits it, he will not fail to give the means and help appropriate. Now, St. Alphonsus Liguori. St. Alphonsus Liguori is often misquoted as believing in uh, Bellarmine's position, but it's pretty clear uh, from a holistic reading of St. Robert Bellarmine that he actually just holds to, you know, St. Robert Bellarmine, St. Alphonsus Liguori, that he actually just holds to the position of Cajetan and John of St. Thomas. And I'm going to check the, oh, nothing so far in the live chat. Uh, In an essay um, on the authority of the Pope added by St. Alphonsus at the end of the edition of his Moral Theology in 1248, the Holy Doctor vigorously defends the superiority of the Pope over the council, but beforehand he declares, one, It should be noted that the superiority of the Pope over the council does not extend to the dubious Pope in the time of a schism, when there is serious doubt about the legitimacy of his election, because then everyone must submit to the council as defined by the Council of Constance. Then indeed the General Council draws its supreme power directly from Christ, as it's times of vacancy of the Apostolic See, as was well said by St. Antonius. Two, the same must be said of a Pope. Who would be manifestly and exteriorly heretical, and not only secretly and mentally, or a cult? However, others argue more accurately that in this case the pope cannot be deprived of his authority by the council, as it were, above him, but that he is deposed immediately by Jesus Christ when the condition of this deposition, i.e., the declaration of the council, is carried out as required. So, notice this is exactly the position of Cajetan and of John of St. Thomas. After presenting the views of Zorius, viz that the council is above a manifestly heretical Pope, St. Alphonsus nuances it, and therefore ultimately follows a position of Cajetan of John of St. Thomas, considered as more accurate. St. Alphonsus did the same in his apologetic treatise, Truth of Faith. When in time of schism, we are in doubt about the true Pope, the council may be uh, convened by the cardinals and the bishops, And then each of the elected popes is obliged to follow the decision of the council, because at that time, the apostolic see is considered vacant. It, however, it would be the same if the pope would fall notoriously and preservingly, persistently in some heresy. However, there are those who affirm with more foundation that in the latter case, the Pope would not be deprived of the papacy by the council as it were superior, uh, superior to him, but he would be stripped directly by Jesus Christ because he would then become subject a subject completely disqualified and deprived of his office, notice dispositively. St. Alphonsus defends again the same view in 1768 in his refutation of the errors of Fibronius. If ever the pope as a private person falls into heresy, then he would immediately uh, be immediately stripped of papal authority as he would be outside the church. And therefore, he could not be the head of the church. So in this case, the church should not truly depose him because no one uh, has a superior power to the pope, but to declare him deprived of the pontificate. We said if the Pope uh, fall into heresy as a private person, because the Pope is Rome, that is to say, teaching the whole church ex-cathedra cannot teach an error against the faith because of Christ's promise fail. Now, uh, Father Gary Gou Lagrange, this is going to be the last one. Father Gary Gou Lagrange examines the question of the heretical Pope in his treatise De Cristo Salvatore on Christ the Savior, which is a commentary on tertius Pars. After explaining that Christ cannot be the head of a formal heretic, he concludes, This is why a baptized formal heretic is not a member in act of the church. Yet the church has the right to punish him. Insofar as he does not withhold what he has promised, like a king has the right to punish a deserter. Bellarmine objects that a pope fallen into a cult heresy remains a member of the church in act, for he remains the head of the church, as taught also by Cajetan, Soto, Canis, Suarez, and others. I answer that... This case is quite abnormal, so it is no wonder that it follows an abnormal consequence, namely that an occult heretic would not remain a member of the church in act, according to the doctrine we have just described, but he would keep the jurisdiction by which he influences the church by governing her. So he would retain the reason, i.e. the nature, of head vis-a-vis the church on which he would continue to influence, but he would cease to be a member of the church because he would no longer receive the vital influx of the faith of Christ. Notice the difference between influence and then influx, the invisible and first head. Thus, it is a quite abnormal manner in relation to the jurisdiction he would be the head of the church, but would not be a member. This would be impossible if it were a physical head, but it is not contrary for a secondary moral head, the reason is that even while a physical head cannot exert any influence on its members without receiving a vital influx of the soul, a moral head, as is the Roman pontiff, can exercise jurisdiction on the church even if even if he receives from the soul of the church no influence from the internal faith and from charity. In short, as Billuard says, the Pope is considered a member of the church by his personal faith, which he may lose, and a head of the visible church by the jurisdiction and power that may coexist with the internal heresy. The church will always appear as a union of members placed under a visible head, namely the Roman pontiff although some of those who appear to be members of the church are internal heretics. Therefore we must conclude that occult heretics are only apparent members of the church, which the latter they profess outwardly and visibly to be true one, to be the true one. Okay. That's all I got for you. That is all I have. It's been two and a half hours. So I need to go and have lunch. Remember a collation because today is uh, Ember Wednesday. So remember, pray for seminarians.